So last week, we began our study of the women of the Bible, and we are taking the opportunity to read these texts a little differently than how we've been taught them. Um, Part of the challenge with any stories from Torah that we um, visit as adults is that we often have a pediatric memory of these stories. So, for instance, when I said that we were going to do Sarah tonight, I got from someone a response of, oh, <laughs> like, ew, like, kind of like, boring, right, you know, boring, Sarah. So what do we think of when we think of Sarah and we think of our knowledge of that character? Oh, very old. Very old. Really bitchy after she had a kid. Really bitchy after she had a kid. Okay. Those are the things we know. She's old. She has a child in old age, and then something happens that makes her not so much a heroine, right? Not so fantastic. Makes her pretty mean. This is, we're just talking about what, what in general we, what floats around about Sarah. She first, beautiful, Ken says. She was beautiful. She, she was indeed. Wanted Hagar's child for her own, and then when she had her own, rejected Hagar's. All right, so part of what was going on was this surrogacy through Hagar. And then after she has her own child, she changes a bit. Is kind of what, what we she remember. Anyone? Did Sarah circumcise yeah. anybody? She didn't. She loved her husband. She loved her. How do we know that? Why? Why do we remember that? Because she avoided embarrassing him. When? When she realized that she couldn't have a baby. Okay. She, didn't like him. she wanted to continue uh, his line. Got it. And okay. if she couldn't do it, she was she willing to have the handmaid do she it. She laughed. We remember that she laughed, right? So the, these are the things we kind of know. We call her our matriarch, and that's, that's kind of what we know about Sarah. Um, it is very likely that, as I've said about other people in the Bible that we've studied, it is very likely that a large portion of the Sarah material is lost to us. Most likely, a large part of Sarah's story is gone that Sarah is likely uh, a pedimento, a collection, a collage of different powerful matriarchal images and remnants and um, references for people in the ancient Near East. Uh, And that as patriarchy took over, as our stories are translated into the language of patriarchy and its assumptions and its priorities, a lot of Sarah's story falls off or becomes irrelevant or needs to be somehow dealt with, uh, changed or suppressed. So what I want to ask you to do tonight is just suspend everything you know um, or assume about Sarah. And let's see if we can't meet this matriarch in the context of the ancient Near East. We can put together a possible understanding of the origins of Sarah's story that are quite different than what we have left uh, in the biblical text. Um, But we want to look at her in the biblical text as well and maybe reinterpret, uh, look more carefully from an adult perspective uh, at (coughs) the complicated uh, nature of Sarah. And next week, Sarah's relationship with Hagar, because we're going to look at Hagar, which is a fascinating portrait. Hagar, one of the most, for me, fascinating um, portraits of women uh, or experiences of women in the Bible. So... We, what do we know about the ancient Near East, wh- which is where Sarah and Avram were from? What is, what is her name 
hold it not as close or as close as I did last time. This is fine. Um, the reason we're doing this is because this is going to be on the internet. I'm on the internet. On the um, yeah, on the internet. On our webpage, and it will be a podcast. So you can listen to this, or send it to somebody else, or listen to last session that you missed, or give it to your friends who aren't here. Um, we we're used to talk about Avraham and Sarah. Yes. But they don't start off as Avraham and Sarai. He starts off as Avram. And she starts off as Sarai. Correct. Now, what is... Oh. That's not at all good. Do you think they should put non-dry erase markers up here? I don't think so. All right. So... Sarai. What is the derivation of Sarai? Oh. <laughs> you need acetone. Right. For, first of all, what 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 is her what is what does Sarai actually mean? Women as great multitaskers. <laughs> At least it won't set now, right? Um, so what is it? What does Sarai mean? Anybody know? Princess. Princess. Thank you, Susan. Cooperation is a beautiful thing. So Sarai means princess. What is the root of the Hebrew? The root of the Hebrew. We what is the name? It's gonna kill us all. What is the name of the patriarch whose name we as a people take? What's our name? B'nai what? Children of Israel. Israel. Possibly the same Shoresh. Possibly the same root for Sarah or Sarai, which is, what is it named for, what does it mean here? The struggle. Struggle. To struggle with El, to struggle with God. So possibly, again, a reference to somebody who wrestles, somebody who struggles, a contender, somebody with weight, someone with gravitas in the world. Princess is uh, a term of nobility, right? It's definitely a term of power. Um, whatever the origin of Sarah or Sarai, um, it is very clear that it references somebody who was used to a certain station. Right? This is not a story told of somebody who takes care of the cows. Right? This is very clear in her name. It's very clear in her carriage. Uh, and for Savina Tuval of blessed memory, um, Savina Tuval's um, book, Sarah the Priestess, the first matriarch of Genesis, is what I'm going to be working from uh, tonight. Because Savina, looking at the traditions of the ancient Near East, has gone so far as to say Sarai was not simply given this name princess. It was a designation of her rank and what she, in fact, was, was a priestess. That she is someone who had very high rank in the matriarchal society of the ancient Near East and is somebody who performed the rites and rituals associated with being a priestess, worshiping a um, female image of God, and that the priestess 
was not allowed to become pregnant. A priestess in this position was not allowed to become pregnant. So all of those years of barrenness that we hear about for Sarah or for Sarai, in certain matriarchal cultures that come before our patriarchal story, that historically predate this, anybody in that kind of a power position would not have become pregnant on purpose. It's clear she's not barren because she has a child, eventually. So she's not barren. She is not bearing. So either we can understand her, her change of status from being barren to not being barren as a miracle and an intervention by, uh, in our case, yud heh vav -Hey in our text, of course, the God of Israel, um, which is how our text understands it. Um, likely, there is a different origin <coughs> for this long period of barrenness. And then uh, Sarah decided, or in this case, Sarai, um, changing her status and becoming a mother. That happens in two ways. We're going to read the story of uh, Hagar and how it is that she works with the system of the time, which is very common, of surrogacy in order to adopt an heir for herself. Sarah is worried about building up her own legacy. She's there to build up, she's interested in building up her own lineage. And she can adopt a child of Hagar and make it her child to inherit from her. If she was fertile, how did she keep from getting pregnant? So there were ways that, that, that there were ways that they understood to prevent conception. Um, we are going to uh, talk about Sarai in what Ken referenced. We don't often think about Sarai as being the beautiful, attractive, and in the ancient world, that was a sign of what? Being attractive? Well. Hmm? Blessing. Hmm? Blessing. Blessing. In, in, in our ancient Near Eastern tradition, being physically beautiful was a sign of divine favor. It was a sign of blessing, the same way that being disfigured was a sign of something being, you know, cursed. cursed. Right? Those babies were exposed. Those babies were left to die because it was understood that they would bring a curse to the people, right? That they were disfavored somehow. So all of the matriarchs are described as? Beautiful. Uh, of course they are. Uh, of course they are. So they are all beautiful. Sarah, to an extent that actually it impacts very seriously uh, her life. Let's look at Genesis chapter 12. This is one of the first incidences we see with Sarai, right? So because we, we get this description of the line from whence Avram and Sarai come, the family of Terach. And what we know is that they're going to go from Ur of the Chaldees, where they have been living, and they're going to go to Haran. They're going to go from south, and they're going to head north, what's that? Northwest. They're going to head northwest to Haran, and they settled in Haran. Then Terach dies, and the next thing we get is this story of, uh, of Avram, who's told Lech Lecha, to get up from Haran and to go out from Haran. And this is one of the first stories that we see dealing with Avram and his wife Sarai. So, 
what do we what do we learn? What, what is going on with this story that we see? They are traveling, and they are traveling to Egypt because there was a famine, right? This is the individual story that is going to parallel the story of what will become the nation, right, at, at another part of this book, right? So we've got um, Avram going down to Egypt because there's a famine in Canaan. This is what you do. When the rainfall affects the crops and it's, there's no food because there's no rain, you go to Egypt where the crops are watered by the Nile, by the overflow of the Nile. Very common. So... Avram goes down to Egypt. You always go down to Egypt. And as he was about, they, they were about to enter, he turns to his wife, Sarai, and says, you are so fantastically gorgeous that if the Egyptians see you and think she's his wife, what are they going to have to do, right, to get you? They have to kill me to take you. But if you say that you're my sister, then it may go well with me because of you, and I may remain alive thanks to you. There's a very real threat of Sarai not only being taken, but of Avram being murdered in order for people to get to Sarai. She is that magnetic. She is that right, attractive that it's a real issue. So one of our first questions is, say that you are my sister. We always assume that if someone is the child, the biological child of a mother, so you have mother and you have father, you can share a father, right? So you can share a father and not share a mother. In the ancient Near East, if you didn't share the same mother, you were not considered siblings. Because it went matrilineal and matrilocal. So for you to be siblings, you needed to share the same mother. It's also provable. It's, well, it's definitely provable, and it's probably why it was... Uh, use, right, obviously, as it changes as patriarchy um, takes over, of course. But, so let's keep that in mind that, that in ancient Mesopotamia, they may have had a different understanding and a different construct in terms of the whole idea of who's a brother and who's a sister to whom and how. But in any case, it's clear that even if Avram is telling the truth, if Avram really does believe there's a way they could, you know, make a kinship term that would, would actually fit, it's still suggesting his life will be spared and well, what happened to her? She could be taken. She, she could be taken. In more than one sense of the word. It, exactly. So this is, so, so then we have the entrance into Egypt. There's a, the translation that was read, and she probably whoever read it up. That book must say something different than mine, because mine said, and you use it, if the Egyptians see you, but she read when the Egyptians see you. Uh-huh. And there's a big, if you're thinking of putting a labor in at this point, or Avram at this point, there's a big difference between the two. In the terms world. of his, what he suggests? Well, in terms of where his mind is. He's saying, if it says when, he's saying it's going to happen 
you're going to have to sure. do this. He says, if, if it happens, will you do this? I, I just think it's an interesting, I don't know what the Hebrew says. So the, the Hebrew says, there's lots of ways to translate key. It can be when, it can be if, it can be that. And it will be that they will see you. And then, blah, blah, blah. It can be when they see you, or, or if, but in either case, it is unlikely that they're going to spend any time in Mitzrayim and someone's not going to see her. <laughs> I mean, presumably, it's, we're going to go there, they're going to see you, and it could, it could go bad. I mean, it doesn't mean necessarily that they're going to try to take her, but if that should happen, here's what you need. Here, please say this so that they don't kill me to take you. Does, does Sarah have any way of projecting herself? Or maybe she does more makeup or something? <laughs> Burka is one way to do that. Um, remember that in the ancient Near East, men and women would have been very segregated. Right? They would have been very separate. Women had their realm, and men had their realm. They were very, very separate. Um, so they come into Egypt, and look what happens. They come into Egypt, and the Egyptians saw that she was, in fact, very beautiful. And Pharaoh's folks come out, right, his, his high-ranking. And what is the Hebrew? This lovely play in Hebrew. Vayiru ota. Who saw her? Sarai Pharaoh. Sarai Pharaoh. Sarai. Sarai Pharaoh saw Sarai. Say that three times fast. And they praised her to Paro. So now they've gone to Paro to say, there is a really fine or of the Chaldean women, woman down here. And uh, they're in dire straits. And, right, so what happens? And the woman was taken to the house of Paro. And what happens for Avram as a result of Sarai being taken into the harem of Paro? It went very well with Avram. Right? And he got sheep, and he got goats, and slaves, and she-asses, and camels, lots of stuff. The stuff that makes you successful in this culture. But, look at verse 17. So, but what happens is, Yudhei afflicts Paro with huge afflictions ve'et beto and his whole house al devar sarai eshet avram on because of the matter of sarai the wife of avram so paro calls to avram and says mazotasita what is this that you have done where did we hear this phrase recently <coughs> in the garden of eden Right. You were listening. That's right, Maura. So, Mazotasita. Uh, God comes and says once again. So, usually, God comes and says, what have you done? God's gonna, we're going to have it again, in, as Ken says, later in our, in our Genesis narrative. But right here, it immediately echoes. The authority comes down and says, what have you done? What is this that you have done? Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? 
Why does Paro care whether or not Sarai is Avram's wife? Why is he so upset about this? But how did he know? How did he know? Let's hold that. Very good question. How did he know? So, Lama Amarta Achotihi, why did you tell me she was your sister? And I took her as wife. So now, here's your wife. Take and go. They were wearing matching wedding bands. <laughs> so they suffer from Nigaim Gedolim. The whole house suffers from very large, bad sufferings that immediately lead Paro to assume that there has been some impropriety about Avram's relationship to Sarai. You tell me, how did he know? Maybe she was the only one who didn't get sick. Maybe she was the only one who didn't get sick, okay? So somehow she's protected, okay? She's immune. How does that in any way say anything about Avram having lied? Very likely that the illness, the affliction with which the entire house was afflicted, with very large afflictions, was of a nature that he imme- that Pharaoh immediately knows this is a sexual issue about transgression. There has been a transgression of something about sexuality. And he's just taken Sarai into his harem and taken her as wife. Now, what we do not know, obviously, from this text is what happened. For the rabbis, God forbid a million times Sarai had intercourse with Pharaoh. God forbid. God protected her in the house. Pharaoh never called for her, and somehow she remained, you know, chaste uh, the whole time she was in the palace of Paro. The business of the great affliction that immediately descends, and he makes, Paro makes a very quick connection, leads one to believe otherwise. Otherwise. Kind of like a reverse version of the uh, Trojan horse. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm not going near the first word of that phrase. All right, so Faro put men in charge of him and his wife and everything that they had. Meaning, let's be sure these people leave. Right? You think he'd kill them? It is. So, most likely, why doesn't Pharaoh kill him? If she's that beautiful, he would think that it would cause a, a, a curse upon him to kill a beautiful woman. Or that he has transgressed against Avram. Even though he was tricked into it, if he has transgressed against Avram, he can't now do something to Avram's woman further. Right? Like, he's already, he will compound the, his whole house is sick because of something going on with this couple, right? And as a result of dealing with this couple. So, he is not going to mess with Sarai. Right? All right. So, there is, in ancient Near Eastern tradition, a ritual. There is a rite wherein the priestess who represents the goddess, becomes the goddess incarnate. 
This is the great marriage that happens in the ancient world. This is how the fertility of the crops are ensured. This is how if the king is having an issue, then it can be resolved by uh, engaging in a long set of rituals to prepare for the sacred marriage of the king with the embodiment of the goddess through her priestess. And that would involve a ritual marriage that would involve intercourse. If we're looking at the remnants of a story of Sarai, who is in fact going into Egypt to see Pharaoh, it is possible she is going to perform the sacred marriage in our original traditions of Sarai. That she is going to meet the king of Egypt in order to be in her full role as someone who would have gone in to Pharaoh in a very sacred, very big ritual marriage. Very public. Very public. In terms of what was happening, mm -hmm. the ritual itself, um, I don't know, but the but that this was happening, she would have been very high, high ranking and would have been in demand and would have been called in. So here she's, here she's following what Avram asked. She's doing it out of loyalty, out of love for Avram and to protect Avram and is taken by Paro and is passive. There is reason to believe that the origins of this story are not of someone who necessarily would have been passive and not necessarily um, would have been uh, doing so because she was being asked to protect someone else, right? That she would have done that fully in her own right. I've given you the article from Savina, so, from <coughs> Savina, so that you can make up your own minds about what you think. Um, but I do love flirting with the possibilities of what earlier renditions of Sarai and these episodes might have looked like. In the time before they were part of a patriarchal tradition, it is fun to flirt sometimes with, um, with what it might have been. Given what we know, given the text that we've inherited, given the Sarai that we encounter in Jewish texts, we know that she seems to really have loved Avram enough to do this. Whatever it took for her to be willing to protect him, knowing that she might be taken. Whatever it took for her to do that, she did. And she came out of it just fine, turns out. Um, and so did her husband. So Sarai had whatever it took to risk what she had to risk and survive whatever she survived, even if she had it well in the palace and was treated very well to spa massages and all of those wonderful treatments, even so, her, her life was not in her own hands once she's in that palace. Everybody knows that, if you're a woman in Pharaoh's palace. So our foremother here makes a choice. Avram asks her opinion. Avraham pleads with her to save his life. He doesn't order her, right? He doesn't say, you are my wife, and so I can tell you what to do. That is not the relationship that we have between Avram and Sarai. Lovely, lovely. It's, it's a very, very clear, I think, parallel, yes, to what it means to be willing to risk, right, turning oneself as a woman in that culture over. As an object. To, as an object, that's right, by the powers that be, knowing you would have no way to get it back. 
right? And, and being willing to do that was, uh, yeah, I think there is definitely a parallel. Um, and actually the, I don't want to digress too far, but, um, but Mordecai and Esther, right? Yeah. Who are the gods that we're dealing with here? Oh. Yep, you're right. Ishtar and Marduk. Many scholars believe that's exactly what's happening here in the Purim narrative. That it is a parody about Marduk and Ishtar. Care for all you Jews who are not going back to rebuild Israel. Cyrus has let them go back. All you Jews who are not going back to rebuild the temple, don't think you have it so good. Any moment, y'all who live so well under Marduk and Ishtar in that culture, any moment, one Haman, and it's over for you. But I digress. Well, we've heard that since. Huh? We've heard that since. We've heard what since? At any, any moment, things can change. In your you life. Jews, yes. you Jews in America, you think you have it so good? It takes one whatever, and that's right. We've heard it over and over and over and over to the ongoing story of the uh, Jewish people after the exodus from uh, the exodus, after the exile from Israel, and it's um, there's a lot of us who are, are tempted to look at that again in terms of our current relationship with Jews in Israel. You know, in other words, mm-hmm. the, the continued identity outside of the land of Israel, now that we have the opportunity to, to go back and don't choose to. Are you saying here, getting back to Sarah yes. and Avram, yes. that all the power is in her hands? He seems quite passive. I mean, he's begging her, please, and she's the main actor. She's she's definitely active. It's very clear that he's not going to do this without her permission. I mean, and possibly it depends on her. You know, she has to say it, obviously. But yes, she seem she seems active, and he does. Avram is troublingly passive sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Viva Zornberg calls it his um, empathic lapse. <laughs> that this is an empathic lapse on Avraham's part, and it happens again with whom? Isaac. You better believe it. Yeah. That there's a lapse of empathy where he doesn't act, and because, or you know, or acts in a way that demonstrates a lapse of empathy, um, and that that it's it's what happens with Avraham sometimes. He's also real clear that Sarai is his meal ticket. I mean, because of her, it went well with him. Well, that, that's the narrator. Right? To be fair to Avram, that's the narrator. Right? Saying that it went well with him. It's not Avram yeah. saying he, that. He, he, but he's he, he clearly saw that that was what was about to happen. Well, either that or she stays in the harem forever. He doesn't know that some illness is coming. That's going to get them paid off and kicked out. And Right? Are the rabbis troubled at all that Avram wouldn't protect her? Sexuality for the rabbis like seems to completely just oh, yeah. say, "Oh, yeah, sure. Here, take my wife." What, what do you think the rabbis do with that? What do they say about Avram in this? That he knows God's going to handle it. He has full faith. He has full faith that the God he's been talking with is going to protect Sarai. That that's the rabbinic tradition. So we can. We can discuss whether or not, or how much we buy it. He was told this a few pages back. That 
that I, you make you a great nation and I would like the nations will be blessed by you and all mm -hmm. those good things are going to happen. You know, if you're a man of faith, you buy it, absolutely. But he's not told, and Sarai, there, there's going to be some hinky stuff with her, but it's going to be okay. Right? He's, he's told he's going to be okay, and he will be a great nation. Sure, yes, but he also knows that it's within his power. He has to do something mm -hmm. in order to do this. God doesn't just all of a sudden plop him down with a great nation around him. Right. That he's responsible for taking care of himself and his family. To give up his wife. Mm. <laughs> he does. No, he does. He knows the plight is coming. He, kn he knows God. Ah. We've got to go through this again with the Akidah. We're going to go through it every time he's challenged. So this, so this is the answer. This, this is, is the traditional answer. Is that he? He's fully faithful. That it's going to be fine. That that is, that is definitely the traditional answer. So. Nice for him. We have to remember that, that in Canaanite and Greek tales, it is not unheard of to have the beautiful heroine be abducted by a king. This is a common motif in the region. We see this and go, what? Abducted? Right? This is absolutely a motif. It's proof of her beauty. Right? These stories in some ways. Think of what's the most famous that launched a thousand ships. Helen, Helen of Troy. How beautiful was she? She was so beautiful that a king took her, put his whole nation at risk, and a thousand ships were launched by the other side to get her back. Right? That, that's how beautiful she was. That is what we're dealing with. The motif of how beautiful was Sarai? So beautiful they couldn't even go into Egypt without a plan. All right, so let's look at... But are there any stories on the male side that he was so handsome that? No. It sounds unfair. Because in, in this culture, in the ancient Near East, the sign of divine favor for women was beauty. It didn't hurt for men. Think of King David. Right, but they, but their good looks rarely made them vulnerable, and it was rarely about what would happen to to them vis-a-vis -vis their sexuality. It made them more popular. It gave them more sexual opportunities, but it never meant anything for them, you know, necessarily in terms of marriageability. Right, but but where, what are men divinely favored with? Strength. Strength. Deliverance from danger. Deliverance from an immediate threat, victory over the enemy, whoever one's enemies are, domestic or foreign. Um, all right, so we need to find our second episode with Avimelech. Try Genesis 28, 20, verse 8. 20? Actually, it's before that. Genesis 20. All right, yeah, there we are. Yeah. 20. Another place that... Savina Tubal suggests that Sarai is once again summoned, this time to meet with the king of Gerar. So they journey to the region of the Negev. They're in Gerar, and Abraham says to his wife, I mean, said of his wife, she is my sister. Again. Right? So King Avimelech of Gerar had Sarah brought to him. But God came to Avimelech in a dream by night and said to him, You are to die because of the woman that you have taken, for she is a married woman. 
Now Avimelech had not approached her. He said, O oh God, will you slay people even though innocent? He himself said to me, she is my sister. And she also said, he's my brother. When I did this, my heart was blameless and my hands were clean. And God said to him in the dream, I knew that you did this with a blameless heart. And so I kept you from sinning against me. That was why I did not let you touch her. Therefore, restore the man's wife. Since he is a prophet, he will intercede for you to save your life. If you fail to restore her, know that you shall die, you and all that are yours. So next morning, Abimelech called the servants and told them everything that, are, that had happened. They were greatly frightened, properly so. Then Abimelech summons Avram and says to him, what do we hear again? Ma'asitalanu. What is this that you've done to us? Bringing such a huge guilt upon me and my kingdom. Right? These things should not be done. What was your purpose? Verse 11, I thought, said Abraham, surely there is no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. And besides, she is in truth my sister. Why? She is my father's daughter. So Aram and Sarai might share a father, but have different mothers. Hmm. That's what we call a stepsister. Oh, yeah. Half-sister. Half half-sister. This is a half-sister. So this is one of the places that Savina Tubal reads into this, an earlier tradition in the matriarchate of the region that in fact Avram wasn't lying either time. That in fact they had a relationship that was defined according to matriarchal and matrilineal and matrilocal tradition as being kind of related. So that they are in fact you know from the same father. All right. So that he's in fact sort of telling the truth. Um, it's just not, it wouldn't have been incestuous because they didn't have the same mother. All right. So how old is Sarai at this episode? 65. 65. Try again. 90. Little time's passed. 90. Why wasn't it considered incestuous if you had the same father? Because that's how they were. That was the culture of the Today time. Today it would be. Correct. Yes. For us it would be. Margo, what was your question again? Oh, I thought she was 90 when she had her children. So that's right around this same time. Leading, some folks... Aha! 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 You see where this is going. Some folks to question, Savina Tuval being one of them, to question the origins of the story of the father of Isaac. That there was divine intervention, yes, for Sarai to have a son. Yes, it happened for, I mean, so there, there's questions about what an original story might have looked like had the sacred marriage been performed. Possible in order, partly. Sarai is now interested, no longer in having just Hagar's offspring. And we're going to look at why and what's up with that tomorrow. So, so 
In this, in this situation, we're told that she's not approached by Avimelech. But again, Sarai was in the position of possibly having been approached, right? All right. So the next thing we want to look at is Genesis 18. The area that Sarai and Avram are going to spend time in and it gets mentioned a lot is Mamre, yes? The Terebinth of Mamre. We've heard this, yes? The Terebinth of Mamre. The Terebinth, any grove of trees would have been sacred to the goddess in the ancient world, in the ancient Near East. The Terebinth, when it calls it the Terebinth, it means the Terebinth that we all know about. In northern Minnesota, up the shore, everyone knew about the witch tree. Right? You said, have you been to the witch tree yet? Have you seen the witch tree? Oh, I saw a brief photograph of the witch tree the other day at the restaurant. Right? You didn't ask which witch tree. It was the witch tree. Because everyone there knew that it was an anomaly. Like it was something different. It was something, and it was identifiable just with the, the designation the. So, so it is with the Terebinth of Mamre, a cult site where a Terebinth would have been understood to be sacred to the goddess. Asherah, most likely, right? And we are told for the rest of Torah that Israel is forbidden to make an Asherah, to put an Asherah by their shrines to Yahweh, right? All worship of Asherah has to be gotten rid of. It's forever in our texts that the prophets are saying that this and this has happened because they did not get rid of Asherah. What does that tell us? They continued worshiping Asherah. Wasn't that what Rachel took from her father's house? She took Trafim, which we're going to talk about uh, when we tell her story. So we get this incident of something happening at the Terebinth of Mamre, right? A cult site of the time. And it is Avram who has, right, this vision of three men coming by. And there's the whole... Uh, annunciation here of the impending birth of um, Isaac, of the impending uh, pregnancy of Sarai. All of this, the cult site, the divine beings that come to announce a miraculous pregnancy, all of this has parallels in the ancient Mesopotamian literature. All of it. We see it later with, say it louder, Jesus. with Jesus. Yeah. Of course it's with Jesus. Yes. Because that came, story came out of this neighborhood. And if you're going to have a hero, right, you're going to have divinity involved, right, then you, there's some things you need. You need a miraculous conception announced by divine beings. Mm-hmm. Right? All right. So they have to be there. So these are elements that we see in other stories. In the, our case, in the text that we have, it's Avram. Right? It is the patriarch. But Sarai is going to have her own encounter with this information as well, right? So he looks up, he sees three folks. He tells Sarah to go make food, and they're going to serve their guests. And it turns out that later they find out these are messengers of God, right? These are, the guests are messengers. The guests are messengers of God. So I'm going to let you, when you go home, read uh, Savina Tuval's unpacking of this episode vis-a-vis, once again, our sacred marriage 
uh, metaphor. I don't want to take time to do that here. But I do want to go to, um, to where Sarai, uh, to Sarah is told about the conception. But why, why don't I have it? 1812. Thank you. 1812. Yes. All right. 1811. There it is. All right. So, nine. They said to him, Where is your wife, Sarah? And he replied, Where, where should she be? <laughs> By Ohel. In the women's. In the women's world. The women's world is the world of the Ohel, of the tent. Then one said, I will return to you next year, and your wife, Sarah, shall have a son. Sarah was doing what? She was eavesdropping. Interesting word. I'm sorry. 18, 11. Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent. Our housewife in her tent, properly preparing and kneading cakes and other things, is not going to allow three visitors to have a conversation with her husband that she doesn't know about. That just simply isn't going to happen. Like, we assume passivity. We assume he has, you know, always full control of information. And what she hears is simply not so with Sarah. She is listening to that conversation. And she hears... Right? What does she hear? That she's going to have a son. And Sarah had stopped having the periods of women. They were old, advanced in years. She was now past menopause. Right? I guess so. And (laughs) there's days I worry it's going to go on that long for me as well. Trust me. And Sarah laughed to herself saying, what does she say? It's very interesting to try to unpack the Hebrew. Now that I am withered, am I to have, what does your translation say? Enjoyment. Pleasure. Pleasure. With my husband so old? (laughs) Right? So what, what is that? So she's acknowledging her age, but when she laughs, she laughs to herself. Like, (laughs) right? She laughs to herself that... She's to have enjoyment with her husband. So old, what I love about this text, what I love about this sentence, is that it suggests that was assumed. That when she had intercourse with her husband, what was she having? Pleasure. 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 It's assumed that Sarah and Abraham have a sexually loving, intimate, pleasurable, enjoyable, physical relationship. Right? She's a little doubtful these last few years that, you know, that it's like probably not been the same. But this is anything but a disempowered female, right, who was acted upon by her husband. There is absolutely no evidence for that in the Sarah story. There's no evidence for it. She acts herself. She makes choices. She participates in decisions with her husband. She stands by her husband. He stands by her all the years of her barrenness when he could have taken another wife. And what we're told in this incident, she's listening to his conversations, right? And that it's assumed that she, she references their relationship, their physical relationship as one which would have, by definition, been one involving enjoyment and pleasure for her. Maybe, 
Maybe when she heard she'll be with child the following year, maybe by pleasure she meant the pleasure of motherhood. Yeah. Except there's a note here that says the word for pleasure actually means, Edna. means abundant moisture. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't write it. <laughs> I didn't write it, he says. <laughs> but you read it. So, right, so clearly... The Hebrew origins supports a sexual connotation um, of pleasure, um, which, okay, never mind. I've been reading another book that I'm not going to talk about. Okay, so then God says to Avraham, why did Sarah laugh, say, laugh saying, shall I in truth bear a child as old as I am? Is anything too wondrous for God? Um, I will return to you the next year and Sarah shall have a son. What, what happens with Sarah here? She laughed to herself. She laughed to herself. But God heard. So when, she, when she's challenged, right, for laughing, Sarah knows she didn't laugh out loud. Sarah knows she laughed to herself. So something's up here, right, that's a little scary for Sarah in this situation. And so she lies, saying, I did not laugh, for she was frightened. God a bit petulantly, if you ask me, he says, yes, you did. <laughs> of course, God will avoid which is strange. In terms of? God, God said, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall, the tru shall, in truth, excuse me, shall I in truth bear a child old as I am, when in fact what she said was old as Avram was? Mm -hmm. So she did, she did admit her advanced years, right? I mean, she did say, I'm withered. Right, but I've read some... She just left that out. God, that, that God was being kind. By not reminding her of what she said about her husband? Oh, about not, her lush and hara? By not telling Abraham. But, by not telling Abraham. Abraham that she made made thought he was old. Aha. So, she's, he, so God here is protecting Sarah from hurting Abraham right. with her words. It's a white lie. This is an example and we can tell white lies. We can say things to people so that we don't hurt them. Yes, and the, the rabbis absolutely say you are allowed to lie to somebody to spare their feelings. Spare their feelings. But is, when it says, when she says, when, Sarah, when it says Sarah lied saying, I did not laugh, for she was frightened, but he replied, you did laugh. He meaning God? Yeah. Or he meaning... Abram. So if you read Abram, then how how might Abram be saying that? Avraham, how might he be saying that here? Avraham didn't hear it because she laughed to herself. God could have told Abraham that. So God somewhere else might have said it to Avraham, and now Avraham's <coughs> mad at her and says, oh, yes, you did. Does God speak to Sarah? So clearly, it seems, yes. Okay, that, I mean, that's... Yes. Okay. And so, directly. again, directly to Sarah. Okay. Yes. Right. So, so the translators clearly, by making it a capital H, are uh -huh. saying uh -huh. he God. Um, it, the beauty of Hebrew is that it, it is not capital. There is no capital, right, or lowercase. So we're it going. Not, it just says end. Said. That's right. Which which means in the, in the Hebrew, it, it's a little, it, it's always a little bit more fun to try to to play with who he is exactly. 
Um, I'm going to hand out before you leave tonight the, did I give you this? Oh, no. Okay. So I'm going to give you this. This is um, the work of uh, Aviva Zorenberg, one of the great, great thinkers of our time um, and great biblical scholars of our time. She's fantastic. And she writes this whole um, interesting piece about barrenness and alienation, that the whole root of the word for barren, you know, Sarah is called barren a lot of the time because it was so long that she was, is akara. And akara means both barren and uprooted. You know, without... And she was. And she was. Like this was, their whole story is lech lecha, right? Their whole paradigm is go out from everything you know and go make this other life. We've not, we've not read the life of Sarah in, in sequence. We've looked at episodes from the collage that is the character of Sarah. In the mythic imagination of the Jewish people, she's the mother of the Jewish people. She is the paradigmatic mother because in some way it's miraculous, you know, what happens for her. And she becomes the mother of a nation. What I love about what Aviva Zorenberg has to say is that is simply not possible without akarut, without that barrenness and without uprootedness. She could not become the mother of this people until she was both, had the experience of barrenness and rootlessness. She says, Sarai is described as both the barren one and the joyous mother. These are not simply successive stages of life, but both remain necessary functions of her identity. Her later happiness never obviates the twin image of alienation. The pun that the Midrash sets in focus insists on alienation slash sterility as the very condition of Sarai's significant maternity. The demand of, on Abraham and Sarah is to leave one existential environment, one set of paradigms, to emerge from their enclosure in the present into a new condition in which a fertile self-realization becomes possible. The promise slash demand of God is, I will make of you a great nation, which the Tanhuma translates as, quote, I shall create you anew. I want you to take some time to think. For us, the story of Abraham and Sarai, I think so much is about um, what it means to have the kind of courage to leave, the kind of courage to be uprooted from what we are comfortable with, what we know, what makes us feel safe and secure, <clears throat> what it means to take, the, to take the risk, to step out and to answer the call of Lech Lecha, because as Zorenberg tells us so beautifully, it is only then that we are able to bring into existence the fruitfulness that is potential until that moment. And it is hard, and it is terrifying, and it's wrenching, and it means leaving things behind in order to become what's next. For you, where is that? What is that about? We will look a little bit more at, at our final woman of this round of the Bible next week. Um, and should there be demand for it, we will do another three class session on three more women of 
the Bible. So thank you for your time tonight and your attention.